0: Listening to the Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Forgotten War The Philippines The USA War Colonialism and the Martial Arts Part 13 Last time I told you the story of the capture, by American General Frederick Funston, of the leader of the Philippine independence movement, Emilio Aguinaldo. Netting Aguinaldo was most certainly a very important event in the Philippine-American War and marked the end of a large fraction of the military action. Three short weeks after his capture, he released a statement formally acknowledging American sovereignty in the Philippines and urging all his followers to cease violent resistance. Over the next few months, several thousand insurrectos surrendered, turning over arms and supplies to the Americans. General MacArthur gleefully announced that, quote, The armed insurrection is almost entirely suppressed, This unanticipated war with people who just hadn't got why it was a better thing to be an American colony than a Spanish one was nearing its end. Then the attention of Americans was drawn back home. On September 6, 1901, President McKinley was scheduled to tour the Pan-American Exposition at the Temple of Music in Buffalo, New York. His personal secretary, George Cordelieu, was very nervous for his boss's safety and had already removed the trip from McKinley's schedule twice. But both times McKinley, who loved to interact with the public, patiently put it back on the schedule. He went to the exposition and was shaking hands in a reception line when Leon Cholgotch, an anarchist, approached and fired a pistol twice at the president. Grazing him with one bullet, but sending the second one deep into his abdomen. Doctors tried in vain to find the slug inside McKinley's gut, but to no avail, so they sewed him shut and hoped for the best. McKinley, a tough Civil War veteran, seemed to recover quickly, at first. But exactly a week after being shot, his wound grew septic, and he died the next day. And that, dear listener, is how our old friend, McKinley's vice president, Theodore Roosevelt, went in just two short years of manufacturing a legend about his actions in Cuba during the Spanish-American War to become the president of the United States. And he inherited a war in the Philippines that appeared to be well in hand. But then, a mere two weeks into his presidency, at a place called Balangiga, something happened that changed perceptions about the war. Balangiga was not located on the largest Philippine island, Luzon, where most of the important action so far had taken place. No, it was on an island called Samar. You see, when Aguinaldo had declared a couple of years before that the conventional war was coming to an end and that a guerrilla conflict would replace it, he ceded much of the control of military activity to local commanders. Some of these commanders swore to continue fighting to the bitter end. One was named Vicente Lukban and he commanded the Philippine forces in the struggle for independence on the island of Samar. Now my primary instructor in the Filipino martial arts Dan Inosanto was the son of Sebastian Inosanto who at this very time was living on Samar as a small boy. So for me at least the story gets much more personal starting right now. Now General Lukban was a fierce military man. He had been a lawyer when the rebellion against Spain began to brew. He was personally responsible for much of the growth of the uprising, using his intellect and connections to raise money and produce propaganda very effectively. He also engaged in espionage against the Spanish, and was finally arrested, imprisoned, and tortured. The Spanish eventually released him. That was a mistake, and he immediately joined the Revolutionary Army. He was a right-hand man to Aguinaldo, one of the select few from whom he accepted advice when it came to military operations. Lukban spent the exile period in Hong Kong with Aguinaldo and made friends there with a high British official named Joseph Churchace, whom Lucban claimed educated him in all matters military. Upon returning to the Philippines, he joined in the new rebellion against the Spanish, taking command of forces on Leyte and Samar. He kept that post when the Americans became the next target of the Philippine military. His efforts there were a microcosm of the war at large. The U.S. 1st Infantry Regiment had landed on Samar in January 1901, three months before Aguinaldo's capture, and nine months before the events at Balangiga. General Vicente Lucban's troops met the Americans on the beach with conventional infantry tactics, bravely charging the Yankee troops. That didn't end well. Lukban quickly regrouped and pulled his forces into the jungles of the interior of Samar, a wild place even the Spanish had never dared enter. Inhabited by a fascinating group of people called the Pulhanes, whom we will revisit in the future. Lukban left behind an intelligence network on the coast. Thus he was able to stay current on what the Americans were up to, but more importantly, Lucban was very serious about detecting and combating any Filipino collaboration with the Americans. He ordered the swift and lavishly violent execution of all collaborators. When Aguinaldo made his proclamation accepting American sovereignty, Lucban, disgusted with his former president and commander-in-chief, swore to fight to the end. General MacArthur wisely offered amnesty to him and his troops. But Lukban refused. As he hid in his jungle headquarters, the American area military commander, General Robert Hughes, began a strategy of destroying food and property in key areas on Samar to try to starve the guerrillas of supplies and support. Now, Samar was and is one of the best places on the planet to grow hemp. Insert your own stoner jokes here. But hemp at this time in history was a major cash crop and a hugely important military supply. Hemp smuggling was a major source of cash for Lukban and his men. In an attempt to cut off this income, General Hughes moved American troops into three key ports on the south coast of the island. One of these ports was named Balangiga. On August 11th, Company C of the 9th U.S. Infantry Regiment landed there. Now, this regiment had seen action only a year before, during the infamous Boxer Rebellion in China. Grateful Chinese officials had given the 9th Regiment the nickname, the Manchus. They wore that nickname proudly. Company C was commanded by a fresh-faced young captain, a fairly recent graduate of West Point named Thomas Connell. Connell was a devout Catholic and completely drank the Kool-Aid of the White Man's Burden. He fervently believed that he was bringing the light of God and Western civilization to these benighted, brown-skinned savages. Connell went out of his way, at first, to treat the Filipinos with kindness. He refused to tolerate any racial slurs directed from his men towards them, much to the irritation of the men. As a result, many of his men referred to him as an inward word lover behind his back. Nevertheless, at first, many of his men fraternized with the residents of Balangiga, drinking with the men, teaching them to play baseball, observing demonstrations of Filipino stick fighting, and even striking up a romance or two with some of the women. But over time, Captain Connell grew disenchanted. He seemed especially obsessed with hygiene and considered the local population to have a filthy lifestyle in need of serious sanitary upgrades. He also didn't approve of certain aspects of the local Filipino culture. He despised the popular practice of cockfighting and felt that the local women dressed in a fashion that was too revealing and tempting to his men. He wanted them to conceal their figures with petticoats as American women did. It never seemed to dawn on him that the equatorial climate made that highly impractical even for the very few women on Samar who could have afforded to buy petticoats. On September 22nd, a couple of drunken American soldiers tried to have their way with a young Filipina at her place of business. Her brothers came to her defense, badly injuring the two Americans. Captain Connell reacted by forcing about 150 of the local men into labor gangs to clean up Balangiga. After toiling all day, about half of them were released because they were in such bad shape from either old age or disability that it was judged that another such work day might kill them. The other 70 or so were crammed into two Sibley tents. A Sibley tent was a U.S. Army shelter used at that time, designed to house about a dozen men. In addition to that, they were not given any food. As if all that's not bad enough... Captain Connell then ordered the confiscation of every bolo in Balangiga. Now, if you've studied the Filipino martial arts, you already know what a bolo is. But for those of you who don't, here's a quick synopsis. It's an all-purpose tool and weapon, a form of short sword not unlike a Latin American machete, useful for clearing brush. Keep in mind how fast everything grows in the Philippines. Useful in a hundred different ways on the farm and as a deadly weapon in the hands of someone who knows how to use it. I've seen some people wield a bolo so skillfully that it's enough to make the untrained observer believe in martial arts magic. But perhaps the biggest reason that confiscating all the bolos in town probably led directly to trouble was that the possession of a sword and the wearing of a sword was a symbol of manhood in Filipino culture, just as it had been for thousands of years in European culture as well. From the perspective of the Filipino men in Balangiga, this was an act of cultural emasculation. The Americans were saying that they were not men. Now, if you believed sincerely that the blade you had worn every day of your adult life was the very symbol of your manhood, how would you react when foreign soldiers took it away from you at the point of a rifle? Well, that's exactly what happened to every man in Balangiga. The captain also ordered all the food in Balangiga, except for that belonging to the Americans, to be destroyed. Now, unbeknownst to Captain Connell, both the mayor and chief of police of Balangiga hated the Americans and were in communication with General Lukban. But for the present, they maintained a mask of friendliness to the Americans. On Friday, the 27th, the women and children of the town were secretly evacuated by the men some of whom dressed as women to avoid having Balangiga look like a giant sausage fest. An American private, Adolf Gamlin, noticed large groups of women leaving and reported it to his superior, who promptly ignored it. The cross-dressed Filipino men smuggled bolos into town in water carriers and in children's coffins, claiming they contained the bodies of cholera victims to be buried in the church cemetery they managed to surreptitiously arm about 500 men, including the prisoners in the Sibley tents. The stage was set. At 6 a.m., Company C's bugler sounded reveille. Yankee grunts filed out of their tents, unarmed, and made their sleepy way to the mess hall. Valeriano Abanador, the chief of police of Balangiga, who still seems to have had the confidence of the Americans, approached the two Sibley tents ostensibly to prepare the remaining prisoners for another day of forced labor. Private Gamblin was already awake on guard duty. Abanador seized Gamblin's rifle from behind and leveled him with a horizontal butt stroke. He began firing the weapon at an American mess tent, wounding one man inside and wreaking a bit of havoc while signaling the beginning of the attack. The bell in the church began ringing at that time, as planned. The armed prisoners came pouring out of the Sibley tents, attacking any American in sight. Many more bolo-wielding men attacked other locations in the compound. For a horrific interval, the grim rage of the aggrieved Filipinos was visited on the unarmed American soldiers, mercilessly cutting dozens of them down. But gradually, some of the sorely beset Yankee grunts got their wits about them and fought back with anything they could get their hands on, including cooking implements and chairs, and even in the case of one American soldier, a baseball bat. Some of the survivors were finally able to find rifles and ammunition and put up a real fight. Private Adolf Gamlin was one of them. Having regained consciousness, he found a weapon and killed or wounded a number of the insurrectos he would go on to live to the ripe old age of 91. The year he was 91, I was 12. At that point, the survivors from both sides retreated from the carnage, the Americans paddling in Filipino outrigger canoes and the Filipinos melting away into the jungle. Out of the 74 American soldiers that began there that day, 48 lay dead. Among the dead was Captain Connell along with all the other officers. Of the surviving 26, only four were not seriously wounded. Eight more would later die from their wounds. Accurate casualty figures for the Filipinos at Balangiga are hard to come by because the Americans had to flee right away and the Filipinos came back quickly and buried their dead before abandoning the town. Our best guess is that about 30 of them died in what the Americans would come to call the Balangiga Massacre and the Filipinos would come to call the Battle of Balangiga. But no matter what you call it, it was the worst defeat of American troops since the Battle of the Little Bighorn 26 years before. But the slaughter at Balangiga would pale in comparison to the vengeance the Americans would wreak. And I'll tell you all about it next time anyway that's what i think but i could be wrong let me know what you think and check out old episodes of the martial brain podcast at my website rpmartialarts.com i'm jeff westfall for the martial brain The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com.